The following Pin Drop Audiobook Theater Company presentation are selected short stories from Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles, adapted for podcast by Kate McClanahan. The first story in this podcast is entitled The Earthmen, featuring as the narrator Kate McClanahan, Robin Carfo as Mrs. Zim, R.F. Daly as Captain Williams, Tate Rupert as Spender, David Gazone as Morello, Carla Kelly as Lindell, Dan Jablons as Mr. R.A., Gerald Emrick as Mr. I.E., Dan Jablons as Mr. Kitu, Chuck White as Mr. Yoyi, Tamara Meskimen as Miss Rero, Lori Jablons as Martian No. 1, Gerald Emrick as Martian No. 2, and Chuck White as Mr. Keo, followed directly by The Shore, featuring Lori Jablons, Gerald Emrick, Tate Rupert, and Robin Carfo. These stories were recorded and edited by Sean Jacobson and Mike Barami at Big House Casting and Audio in Hollywood, California. And now the second installment of our four-part series from The Martian Chronicles. August 2064. The Earthmen. Whoever was knocking didn't want to stop. Mrs. Zim threw the door open. Well... You, you speak English. I speak what I speak. It's English. Wonderful, wonderful English. And with that, the man in the uniform spun around on one foot, gesturing wide to the three crew members with him. All of them appeared to be in a great hurry, all smiling, all dirty. What do you want? You're a Martian. The man smiled. Mrs. Zim simply stared back. It's, uh, it's a term you're not familiar with, certainly. Um, it's an earth term. We're from Earth. I'm Captain Williams. Uh, we've landed on Mars within the hour. Here we are. We're the second expedition. There was a first expedition, but honestly, we don't know what happened to it. Uh, but here we are anyway. And you, my dear woman, are the first Martian we've met. Martian? Uh, w w what I mean to say is uh, you live on the fourth planet from the sun, correct? Elementary. And we... He pressed his chubby pink hand into his chest. We're from Earth. Right, crew? Aye, aye. Aye, aye, sir. We're you ready, betcha. Captain. Look here. This is the planet Tyr, if you want to use the proper name. Tyr. Tyr. <laughs> oh, what a fine name. But, my good woman, how is it that you speak such perfect English? I've met a number of people from my own region who don't speak it as well. I'm not speaking. I'm thinking. Telepathy. Good day. And with that, Mrs. Zim slammed the door. But a moment later, there was that dreadful man knocking again. She whipped the door open. What now? She wondered. The man was still there, trying to smile, looking bewildered. I, I, I don't think you understand. What? The captain gazed at her in surprise. We're from Earth. Look here, I haven't the time. I've work to do. You evidently wish to speak with Mr. Zim. He's upstairs in the study. Yes, please. Uh, by all means, let us speak with Mr. Zim. He's busy. And once again, she slammed the door. This time, the knock on the door was most impertinent. Now, you see here, madam. This time, the man and his crew thrust their way into the house. This is no way to treat visitors. You're tramping mud all over my clean floor. Get out! If you come into my house, you'll wash your filthy boots off first. The group looked to their feet in dismay. 
This is no time for trivialities. We should be celebrating. The captain looked at her for a long time, hoping she might understand. If you wake my plants, I'll hit you with a piece of wood. Only just got them to sleep. Her face was flushed with irritation. Her eyes were sharp yellow. Her skin was soft brown. She was thin and as quick as an insect. Wait here. I'll see if Mr. Zim can let you have a moment. What was your business? What followed was a barrage of expletives from the entire crew that would make a sailor blush. Tell him we're from Earth, and it's never been done before. What hasn't? Never mind. I could care less. Stay here. I don't want you traipsing mud throughout my clean house. The sound of her feet fluttered through the stone house. Outside, the immense blue Martian sky was hot and still as a vast sea. The great Martian desert below lay broiling like a prehistoric mud pot, with waves of heat rising and shimmering. The crew waited uncomfortably, now noticing their less-than-appropriate appearance. Suddenly, the sound of quarreling voices from upstairs distracted them. The group stared at one another, shifting on their boots. After fifteen minutes or so, they began drifting in and out of the kitchen door. Cigarette? Thanks. I'll pass. Take it outside, will you two? We're not making any brownie points here as it is. The voices upstairs continued to mutter and spat. Captain Williams looked at his watch, while the chief navigator and the ethics officer puffed slow streams of pale white smoke out the back door. They adjusted their uniforms, fixed their collars, and made an attempt to dust off what dirt they could. They've been up there half an hour. I wonder what they're up to. Maybe we walked in the middle of something, you know, something personal. Maybe. The ethics officer looked out the kitchen window as early afternoon rose in the yard. (sighs) Hot day. Yep. The voices had faded to a murmur and were now silent. There was not a sound in the house. The crew could hear themselves breathing. An hour of silence had passed. I hope he didn't cause any trouble. He took careful steps toward the living room and peered in. There was Mrs. Zim, watering flowers that grew in the center of the room. Oh, blast! I knew I had forgotten something. She walked out to the kitchen and handed the captain a slip of paper. I'm sorry, Mr. Zim is much too busy, and frankly, so am I. Mr. Zim isn't who you want to see anyway. It isn't? No, you want to see Mr. Are. Take that slip of paper over to Mr. Are over by the Blue Canal, and he'll advise you about whatever it is you want to know. We don't want to know anything. That's enough, Spender. We already know it. You have the slip of paper. What more do you want? With that, the crew found themselves back where they started, on the other side of the kitchen door. They stood there for a moment as if they were children waiting for something. Well, come on then. The crew of four set out into the hot, silent day. An hour or so later, Mr. Are, seated in his library, sipping a bit of electric ice, heard voices outside in the stone causeway. He leaned over the windowsill and gazed at the uniformed group who squinted up at him. Are you, uh, Mr. Are? I am. Mr. Zim sent us to see you. Why did he do that? Uh, he was too busy. Oh, well, that's a shame. Does he think I have nothing else to do but entertain people he's too busy to bother with? That's not the important thing, sir. Yeah, well, it is to me. I have a great deal of reading to do. The crew was restless. They shifted uneasily in the courtyard and tried to interject as the man spoke. Mr. Zim is an inconsiderate 
This is not the first time I've been the recipient of his thoughtlessness, you know. And please stop waving your hand at me, sir, until I'm finished. And you there, I'll thank you to pay attention. People usually pay attention to me when I talk, if you don't mind. You'll either listen courteously or I won't talk at all. The captain felt his eyes well up as if they might tear from frustration. The four gazed up through the heat. Now, do you think it fair of Mr. Zim to be so ill-mannered? We're from Earth. I think it very ungentlemanly of him. Look! Our ship is over there! I'm certain you can see it from there. Not the first time. Zim's been unreasonable, I'll tell you. All the way from Earth. I have half a mind to call him up and tell him off. It's just me and my crew, sir. Come all this way. Think I will call him. I think I will. Earth, Mr. R.A. Earth. Ship. Crew. Trip. Call him up and let him have it. That inconsiderate... Mr. Ari vanished like a puppet on a stage. After a moment, a few angry mumblings could be heard from off and above the courtyard. The captain and his crew glanced back toward their ship lying on a hillside off in the distance. Suddenly, Mr. Ari reappeared in the window, wildly triumphant. Challenged him to a duel, by gods! Mr. Ari, I'll shoot him dead, do you hear? We didn't come 60 million miles to cause trouble between neighbors. The captain smiled gently at him, and Mr. Ari regarded him for the first time. Where'd you say you were from? Now we're getting someplace. We traveled 60 million miles from Earth. Mr. Are yawned. It's only 50 million miles this time of year. Mr. Are picked up a frightful-looking weapon and studied it. Well, I'm afraid you'll have to go now. Just take that silly note, though I don't know what good it'll do you, and go over that hill and into town and tell Mr. Ae all about it. He's the man you want to see. Not Mr. Zim. He's an idiot. I'm going to kill him once and for all. You have to understand you're not in my line of work. Line of work? Line of work? What line of work do you have to be in in order to welcome people from another planet? Don't be silly. Everyone knows that. What a ridiculous statement. And once more, the man was gone. The four travelers stood shocked and disappointed. Captain, we have to make someone listen to us. We will, Morello. Let's get going. Reaching the edge of the small town at dusk, the crew found it quite busy, with people drifting in and out of shops, saying hello to one another and wearing golden masks that smiled or frowned according to each individual's own disposition. The four paused to ask for directions to Mr. Ie's house. Mr. Ie himself answered the door. He was on his way to a lecture, but he had a minute if they would hurry inside and tell him what they desired. A little attention is all we're after. We're from Earth. We have a, a ship. We're exhausted. We're hungry. We'd like a place to sleep. And frankly, sir, if I could be so bold, we'd like someone to give us the key to the city or something like that. And we'd like someone to shake our hands and say, well done. Congratulations, old man, and all that. Mr. Ie blinked keen yellow eyes at him over thick blue crystals that passed for glasses. That about sums it up. Mr. Ie stood still for a moment, taking them all in for the first time. Well, I have in the forms here, I don't think. The old Martian began rummaging through his desk drawers. Now, where did I put those forms? Somewhere, somewhere. Here we are. Now, you'll have to sign these, of course. Do we really have to go through this whole rigmarole? Mr. Ai gave him a thick, glassy look and then addressed the captain. You say you're from Earth, don't you? Well, there's nothing for it but for you to sign. The captain signed his name. You'd uh, like my crew to sign, of course. Your crew? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine, Captain. 
How marvelous. <laughs> uh, I'll have to tell Mr. Keogh. He'll get a kick out of that, I must say. <laughs> What's so funny, sir? <laughs> ah, them sign, really. All right, then. Everything seems to be in order. Uh, the euthanasia, if final decision on such a step is necessary. <laughs> Agreement of what? I take this key. Oh, uh, thank you, sir. It's a great honor. Not the key to the city, you fool. It's the key to the house. Go down the corridor, unlock the big door, and go inside. And be sure to shut the door tight behind you. You can spend the night there. In the morning, I'll send Mr. Keogh to see you. The crew didn't move. They seemed empty of all blood and rocket fever. They were drained dry. What are you waiting for? I don't suppose you could even... I mean, that is... Would would you... We've come such a long way, and maybe if you could just shake our hands and say well done, do, do you think... Mr. I.E. stuck his hand out stiffly and supported a cold smile across his face. Congratulations. Now I must go. Use that key. Without noticing them again, as if they had melted down through the floor, Mr. I.E. swept up his manuscript of papers, was in the room another five minutes, but never once addressed the solemn quartet that stood there defeated. The light dwindled from their eyes. When Mr. I.E. went out the door, he was busy with his fingernails. They straggled down the corridor in silence, opened the large door at the end, and found themselves in a vast, sunlit hall. Men and women sat at tables and stood in groups conversing. With the sound of their entrance, the room regarded them with thunderous applause and merry. The hall exploded with shouts and cries of joy. Martians stepped up with outstretched hands. How do you do, sir? I'm Mr. Kitu. Captain Jonathan Williams, New York City, Planet Earth. The rafters shook with excitement. People continued to rush forward, swarming the crew from Earth, lifting them up. They rode the shoulders of the crowd of Martians for a full minute before they began to laugh and shout themselves. This is what, this is lovely. How about that? This place is perfect. They winked at each other. They flung their hands to clasp the air. They must have charged about the hall six or seven times. The crew lost count. Everyone laughing and singing and carrying on. Then they set the Earth crew on a table. As the shouting died down, the captain almost broke into tears. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's so good. It's so good to be here, finally. Tell us about yourselves. The captain cleared his throat. The audience was spellbound. They oohed and awed as he spoke. He introduced his crew one by one. Each made a small speech and thanked each other publicly and they were all embarrassed by the thunderous applause. Afterward, Mr. Yoyi patted the captain's shoulder. Well, <clears throat> it's good to see another man from Earth. I'm from Earth as well. Uh, how is that again? There's many of us here from Earth. You, really? Uh, how did you get here? Has space travel been going on for centuries? Of course. What country are you from? Tyreel. I came by the spirit of my body years ago. Tyreel? I've never heard of that. Well, Miss Rero's over there. She's from Earth, too. Aren't you, Miss Rero? She nodded and laughed. So's Mr. Waddy and Mr. Quatu and Mr. Vivo. I'm not. I'm from Jupiter. I'm from Saturn myself. Jupiter? Saturn? G good grief. Tell me, Mr. Yoyi, where on Earth is Tyreel? 
Is it in the U.S.? Uh, what's that? You know, America. I don't know what you're talking about. Earth is a planet covered with seas and nothing but seas. Everybody knows that. You look like a regular Martian to me. Yellow eyes, brown skin. Earth is covered with a jungle. Almost nothing but jungle, except for OT. That's where I'm from on Earth. It's a beautiful city made of nothing but silver. Don't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. For the first time, the captain noticed there were no windows. Light seemed to permeate the walls, and there was only one door. He began to shiver. Somberly, he turned to his communications officer and navigator. Do you realize where we are? Excuse me, sir. I don't think this place is what it first may seem. What are you saying? This is not a celebration, sir. This is no banquet put together for our benefit. What are you talking about? What else could it be? Look around you, Spender. These people are not government representatives. I know what you're getting at, Lindell. Captain, everyone passed us from hand to hand. Think about it. Where are we, sir? The captain hung his head and exhaled. An insane asylum. That night, the large hall lay quiet and dimly illuminated from sources beyond the transparent walls. The foursome sat around a table, heads bent in whispers. On the floor surrounding them, men and women lay sprawled in various configurations. Every half hour or so, a crew member would try the great silver door and return to the table. <sighs> Nothing doing, sir. We're locked in good and proper. They honestly think we're insane, sir? Looks that way, Morello. Look around you. Throughout the midnight hall, people were plagued by strange demons of their own design. Figments come to fruition of each and every demented imagination in the room. One man squatted in the corner. Out of his mouth popped a blue flame, which became a ball spinning and then changing again into a tiny naked woman. She flourished mid-air for a time, singing and cooing before vanishing. Nighttime was the time of change and affliction. A woman stood there changing, becoming a marble pillar, then melting into the floor and changing into a woman again. We're surrounded by psychotics. We're witnessing their hallucinations. We're simply able to see their psychosis up close and personal. Jesus, this is hard to take. If hallucinations can appear this real to us, to anyone, it's no wonder they mistook us for psychotics. Martians figure anyone's able to simply imagine a ship or mock themselves up to look like anything they want, let alone people of Earth or anywhere else. Martians assume anyone can do that with their minds. And only a psychotic would make a claim so odd as to say he or she were from another planet. Good God, we have to get out of here. Calm down, Morello. We'll bide our time till morning. The forest stayed close, while all around them in the vast hall, flames leaped, sometimes 30, 40 feet high in the air, then evaporated. Little demons of red sand ran between the teeth of a sleeping man. Groups of women became oily snakes, and the night smelled of animals and reptiles. In the morning, everyone stood around, looking fresh, happy, and normal. There were no more flames or demons in the room. The captain and his crew were left half wondering if maybe psychosis wasn't contagious. They stood waiting by the door, hoping it would open. After about four hours of standing around, Mr. Keo arrived. 
They felt he had been waiting outside the door, peering in at them for at least three hours, before finally stepping in, beckoning them, and leading them to his small, unimpressive office. If you could believe the mask Mr. Keogh wore, he was a smiling, jovial man, for on it was painted not one smile, but three, though behind it was not the voice of a smiling psychologist. Now, what seems to be the trouble? Clearly, you think we're insane. And we're not. I don't think you're all insane. You don't? No, just you. The psychologist pointed a little wand at the captain. What? Well, you, you've got to be kidding. Then how do you explain my crew? As secondary hallucinations, of course. Is that why Mr. I.E. left? I excuse me? When I asked if my crew needed to sign in. Oh, oh yes, yes, quite humorous, really. Now, where was I? Oh, yes, secondary hallucinations. I have women come to me with snakes crawling from their ears. Those snakes vanish when I cure them, though, I must say. Well, we'll be glad to be cured. Be my guest. Go right ahead. I beg your pardon. You want to be cured? Very unusual. Very, very unusual. The cure is drastic, mind you, and final. Cure away, Mr. Keogh. I'm confident you'll find we're all perfectly sane. Now, let me check your papers to be sure they're in order. I must say, sir, yours is the most detailed fantasy manifestation I've ever encountered personally. You see, the cases in the Great Hall are much simpler forms of psychosis. Obviously, your case is a great deal more involved. Your fantasies consist of primary, secondary, auditory, tactile, and optical hallucinations. We'll have to resort to euthanasia. L look, test us, tap our knees, check our hearts, exercise us. We'll take you to our ship, whatever it takes. But let's get on with it already. I would like to see the ship, yes. If you don't mind, manifest it right here in this room. Uh, I'm afraid we'll have to take a little hike, Mr. Keogh. Uh, there's no need for that. Just place it here in my office. I'm afraid that's impossible, Mr. Keogh. In an attempt to humor the captain, and for the sake of research, Mr. Keogh agreed to follow the four back to their ship on the side of the hill. It was noon when they arrived, and the day was very hot and getting hotter. So? The psychologist tapped on the ship. It gonged back a response, a deep, soft tone. May I go inside? You may. Mr. Keogh stepped inside and was gone for a long time. The captain unwrapped a cigar and stuffed it into his unshaven face, perturbed. For two cents, I'd go back home and tell them not to bother with Mars. Would it be safe to assume that a good number of the population up here is insane, sir? Uh, wouldn't that account for the great deal of doubt in our credibility? Mr. Keel emerged from the ship after about a half hour of prowling, tapping, listening, smelling, and tasting. Convinced, Mr. Keogh? This is the most incredible example of tactile hallucination I've ever witnessed. Right down to the sonic detail. May I congratulate you, sir? You have to be a psychotic genius. How you're able to sustain these images with all the mass and matter as they contain for as long as you do is almost too exhausting to imagine. I'm awestruck by the beautiful detail in your insanity, sir. The captain went pale. Insanity? Never have I seen such complexity, such a concentration of will. No matter how and when tested, consistently you've managed to employ sound, taste, weight, depth, solidity. I embrace your complete conviction, sir! Look, we've been put through enough of this. I'll lecture about you at the academy next month. 
I'll write this in my monograph. You're right about one thing. It is an historic happening, all right. I mean, look at yourself. To go so far as to completely morph your own appearance so thoroughly and constantly. Mr. Keogh revealed a small handgun. And then there are your three companions. Incurable, I'm afraid. You'd be better off dead. You'll be happier. Wait, please. I, I really am Captain Jonathan Williams. Mr. Keogh shot the captain in the chest, killing him almost instantly. The crew screamed and grasped wildly toward one another. Mr. Keel was taken back that the crew still existed. They should have evaporated into the air, at least in Mr. Keel's mind. The three secondaries still remain, hallucinations with time and spatial persistence. Mr. Keel took aim at the crew through their screams of resistance. He shot again and again and again and again until the smiling mask dropped off his face and their bodies lay motionless on the hillside. His own expression changed very slowly. His eyes remained dull and vacant. His mouth began to give off a faint froth. He began to shout at the bodies as he tripped over them in a blind circle. Go away! Go away! Why don't you dissolve? You're not supposed to be here! He examined his own trembling hand fearing what he had done, kicking at them to test for density. Gods, it's carried over to me. Contaminated. I've been contaminated. I've been made insane. Only one cure. Only one way to make them vanish. Only one. A final shot rang out, and Mr. Keogh fell to the ground. The bodies lay in the sun alongside the small foreign ship, on the sunny little hill, and the ship did not vanish. Later at sunset, some people found it and wondered what it was. Nobody knew. So it was sold for scrap and hauled off to a junkyard. It rained that whole night, but the next day was fair and warm and dry. October 2066 the shore. Mars was a distant shore. And the people spread upon it in waves. Each wave different. And each wave stronger. The first carried with it people accustomed to spaces. And coldness. And being alone. The coyote and the cattleman. With no fat on them. With faces the years had worn the flesh off. With eyes like nail heads. And hands like the material of old gloves. Ready to touch anything. Mars could do nothing to them. For they were bred to plains and prairies. As open as Martian fields. They came. And made things a little less empty. So that others would find courage to follow. They put panes in hollow windows. And lights behind the panes. They were the first wave. The second should have traveled from other countries. With other accents. Other ideas. But those rockets were American. And the people were American. And it stayed that way. While all of Europe. And all of Asia. And all of South America. And Australia. And all the rest of the world watched as the Roman candles left them behind. The rest of the world was buried in war. Or the thoughts of war. So the second wave was American also. And this time, they came from cabbage tenements. And subways. And they found much rest and vacation. In the company of silent men from tumbleweed states. Who knew how to use silences, so they filled you up with peace. After long years crushed in tubes, tins, and boxes in New York. And among the second wave. Were the people who looked by their eyes. As if they were on their way to God. 